Lord Jesus, you address us through your word, the Bible. And all scripture is spoken through you and for us and our salvation and it is all about you. Please, make yourself known to us today in a fresh and powerful way. May we realise that your written word is actually your voice to us and not just words on a page. We ask it for your sake. Amen. Just to get a bit of context on the passage in Psalm 110, I thought I'd give you a, a graph or a diagram which has come up. Now, you may or may not know about an organisation called uh, Open Doors. They run a World Watch uh, program and they try to ascertain as best as possible where Christians are being persecuted and they try to make sure people are praying for them and also providing needed resources where they can. It's a very worthwhile ministry to support. And on their website it states that there are 245 million Christians persecuted for their faith this year. The top 50 countries, that is, the place where more, more Christians or most Christians are persecuted, is in these orange both burnt or dark orange and light orange countries. The dark orange represents the top ten. I don't know how you could call that the top ten, but it's certainly the ten most dangerous places for Christians to live, dangerous countries, and the next 40 are in the light orange. The last time I checked this out, they had three colours and they've now reduced that down to two because they had a category which was, I think, the next 10 and then the next 30. But they've decided that really uh, the last 40 are about equal. And so that is a good way to stimulate our prayers. And this is their motto. Persecution exists where the gospel is being shared. Persecution exists where the gospel is being shared. Now that is the context into which Psalm 110 is speaking. If you were with us six weeks ago, you would have taken up uh, with me the first part of Psalm 110. And you'll remember that Psalm 110 is in two parts. So if you can open your Bibles to that passage now, uh, I'll try and just guide you briefly, uh, quickly through that. And the two parts are marked by two quotations or declarations actually by the Lord God concerning this my Lord of David. The first is in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The second is in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I think the New Revised Standard Version, the one that's in your pews, has misplaced, or has it in the wrong place anyway, the paragraph marker. They've got the paragraph marker as after verse 4. I think it should be before verse 4. I won't hold that against them. But that tells me that these two parts are distinct, but the two parts of the psalm can never be separate. 
for the Psalms, as we read them, are actually a unified whole. The first part talks about the consequences, in a sense, of what's taking place in verse 1 to 3, the first part. The first part, we found out that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, that uh, he is supreme, that he has the position of highest power. We found in verse 2 that the means by which he is exercising his rule over the world is the proclamation of the gospel, the extension of the rule or the scepter of the Messiah. And last of all, we saw that God had brought to the side of this king a a, a host of, of, of people who, I said, were born from above, born anew, who were willing to serve him, who were filled with God's spirit and ready to go. And to change the analogy, uh, since we're in in final season uh, now, uh, heading into September next week, um, it's like a football team streaming forward. That's the image I capture at the end of verse verse 3. It's a majestic picture. The the football team just can't, they just can't drop the ball. Uh, It it goes from from the, the back corner pocket, it goes out, the kick is caught and then that's passed on to another person who catches that and then on and on it goes and slots straight through the middle posts. It's a majestic picture of, of everything working well together. The gospel's going out. People are turning to the Lord Jesus. Are uh, The angels are rejoicing in heaven. Evil, death and suffering are being put in their place. And that would all be true, we would think, apart from one word, and that's in verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and the word is, until. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Until tells us it's not finished yet. So what's going on? Why do we have verses 1 to 3 and then verses 4 to 7? Verses 1 to 3 give us the heavenly reality of what's actually in place now. It's the view, if you like, from 30,000 feet. But down below, in the land of until, things look very different. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places but we are actively engaged right now at ground zero in a battle. Christians are in warfare. And it's not pretty. Even though the enemy's been defeated, he has not surrendered. It's not over yet. That's the picture in verses 5 and 6. It's what's taking place now. The Lord is at your right hand. That is, he, the Son, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He'll execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, and he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. We say, oh, that must be talking about the end. No, no, that's talking about now. That's exaggerated language. And you can tell exaggerated language in the Bible... Uh, it's hyperbole, to use the technical term, when, when, it's, when it says, um, 
shatter chiefs over the wide earth. It's holistic, it's cosmic. There is a battle going on on the earth which is not a physical battle, it's the battle when the gospel goes out. And it's a steady picture that Satan's rule has been, has been uh, disempowered but not finally quelched. What's going on here is, is what happens in the world today where the gospel, the word of Jesus Christ is heard. In fact, it's happening here this morning. Satan's dominion is gradually being overthrown. The evil one hates the gospel, despises the gospel, cannot stand it. Uh, that's why he tries to, to, to silence it uh, through persecution, through um, the wise men of this age. Uh, the, the word of God is ridiculed and mocked. Uh, it happens every day in, in maybe your workplace. Uh, you're kind of forced into submission, you feel. The other thing that happens to us is that the devil's very good at twisting the truth, taking the gospel and then taking one part out or overemphasizing another part, and so twisting it and confusing people, and we call that liberalism, false teaching. And sadly to say, many churches have been infected uh, with that disease. And it's all done to undermine the reality that the pure gospel of Christ crucified, raised and reigning is the means by which lives are actually changed. Damage is done. And every time a person turns to Jesus Christ, the rule of Satan is shown to be false. And it's very, very difficult. Because what takes place when we become a Christian is we become the battlefield. We suddenly are caught up in the fight of Jesus Christ against evil, suffering and death. Not with physical means, but with spiritual means. And, and it's, not, it's not very pretty. And maybe that battle has come to your doorstep this week. Maybe you have actually gone into hand-to-hand -hand combat with the evil one, with sin or temptation. Maybe you didn't win that battle this week. Maybe you've received medical news that's not welcome. That happened to a friend of mine this week. Maybe you're feeling lonely and that got the better of you this week. Maybe the constant news about the Delta strain is scaring you. And you don't want to go out. You don't want to go to Bible study. In fact, coming to church was really a big thing for you today. I'm glad you're here. Maybe a Christian who you relied on let you down this week. Or maybe that was you. Well, across the world, wherever the name of Jesus Christ is elevated above human powers, human authority, whether it be in the workplace, the sporting club, the kitchen table, no matter where it would be, 
opposition, exclusion, derision, isolation, being shut out is taking place. And the result of all of that is there's a battle for the gospel. And the result of that for us is pressure. Pressure. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I don't think I'll go out to lunch with those guys again. I just can't handle it. Yeah, I, I think I'll, I, I, yeah, I won't talk about to my, my, you know, this Christmas party every year. Now, people know I'm a Christian. I just, you know, last year Aunt Flossie just absolutely based me in front of everybody. You had an Aunt Flossie? I did too. Yeah, okay, all right. That wasn't a name, but I had one of those. I well remember saying as we walked out after the end of the Christmas party, thank such and such, they're gone. So there you are. I love you too, Aunt. Yeah. But the pressure is, well, I'll just shut up next time. I'll go quiet. Maybe social media is the place where you've sort of spoken out and you were kind of like jumped on. I don't know. But what happens then is it's like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, I'm, maybe I am being too bombastic. Maybe I really don't know. Pressure. Pressure. And what happens to us under pressure? Uh, do we binge out? Do we go shopping online? Do we get grumpy with those who love us? Do we start complaining, having pity parties? Sometimes we condemn ourselves and say, well, you know, I've been a Christian for all these years, but it hasn't done me any good. We're in the land of until. That's where we are. And the battle is raging. But heads are being crushed. That is, the rule of the enemy is being subsumed by Jesus Christ in the gospel. You need to be above it all to see that. But it is taking place. And it's this ground level warfare that we live in that verse 4 is talking into verse 4 the Lord says to, no, sorry the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek like the first declaration in verse 1 the meaning of this verse was a mystery for centuries. There were many speculations and there were speculations amongst Jewish people. You can find them in the 2nd and 1st century BC. And many people speculate about Melchizedek today. It's one of those kind of like mysterious things that people kind of, some people do maybe spend too much time on. But that declaration here in verse 4 is not given to us for speculation but for encouragement. To grasp the importance of it, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 14. And the context back in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek is mentioned for the first time, is that Abraham's nephew Lot has been captured with his family and all of their goods and chattels and taken off by these kings. Now, we've got to remember the kings in the book of Genesis aren't, you know, like we understand them, they're basically mares 
of towns. That's what they are. They're the kind of local rulers of the towns, and they've banded together. They've come from the north, and they've come down south. They've, you know, looted and taken stuff and whatever, and then they've gone back to where they come from. And then Abraham is enlisted in a group of southern kings to go and recapture all of that so that they can have all their goods and chattels and servants and whatever back again. And so Abraham agrees. And so off he goes. And they win. Lot is captured. They're coming back. They're just about to go back to where they're living to divide up the spoils. And from out of nowhere, up pops Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him, blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything and then he was gone. He appeared and then disappeared and then he pops up again uh, 800 years later, nearly a thousand years later in Psalm 110 and he disappears and he pops up again a thousand years later in the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer draws three things to our attention about Melchizedek which we can focus on. Thing number one, hang in there with me. Thing number one, Melchizedek is a priest and a king. Now in the world of the Bible, that wasn't very uncommon at all. But the important thing about Melchizedek is that his name means king of righteousness. The king who brings about righteousness. And the place where he ministers, Jerusalem, means foundation of peace. And so this king, this priest, brings righteousness, that is justice, God's righteousness, and peace, that is reconciliation. So whoever this person is, that's their job. Two, this priest appears out of nowhere and disappears again. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or end of days, but resembling the Son of God. Notice, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. No ancestors, no descendants, he's unique, he's one of a kind, he's eternal. Point number one, he's a king and a priest of righteousness and peace. Point number two, He's a priest who appears out of nowhere. He continues as a priest forever. So his priesthood didn't disappear. It's still going on. Three, he's greater than Abraham. Because he, how do we know he's greater than Abraham? He blesses him. Only a greater can bless a lesser. A lesser trying to bless a greater, the greater goes, I've already got that. Only a greater can bless a lesser. So he's greater than Abraham. And Abraham recognises that by paying him tithes, by handing over a tenth of everything to this priest, and that was quite a lot for Abraham because he was a wealthy person. 
So Melchizedek, says the writer of the Hebrews, is superior to Abraham and all that's embodied in Abraham, that is all of Abraham's descendants, no matter what takes place. More than that, since Abraham prayed, paid tithes to Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood that would come out of Abraham, which is the Levitical priesthood. He points it out in verse 15. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the line of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, bracket, like Levi, close bracket, but by the power of an indestructible life. So what? Christ's priestly work, his intercession, so that's what priests do, they intercede on behalf of others in such a way that individuals can't act by themselves. His intercession is superior because it is eternal. Why is that? Because if his priesthood is eternal, then the things that he does in that priestly work are eternal too. Do you see? It's his priesthood is effective for eternal things like righteousness and peace with God. Now, he brings this home in verses 23 to 25. Former priests, many in number, but prevented by death. But this priest holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Not just that he lives forever, he continues in his priesthood forever. Consequently, and this is the key point, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Poof, well done. So what? Let me finish by talking about Joanne. Uh, not her or his real name, but a real person nevertheless. Uh, Joanne was a student at Trinity Theological College. This may or may not incline you to become a student at Theological College, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. She was smart, lots of energy, very successful in business, incredibly hard-working, and had built themselves up from the ground over many years in their industry, but was plagued with self-doubts. The night before a big exam, she phoned me up. Uh, she'd studied hard uh, during the week, maybe too hard, but she wondered if it was enough. She said, oh, I never did very well at school. I'm a practical person. I said, Joanne, oh, I didn't do very well at school either. Uh, when my children see my reports from school, they become rather angry at me that I made them work so hard. Then came the request. Don, could you postpone my exam by a week so I can have more time to get ready? Hear that? That's, that's pressure. That's finding a way out of the pressure. I said, uh, no, Joanne, I can't do that. That date's fixed. I can't change that. Silence. 
more pressure. This is what she said. I guess it's payday for me then. Payday. That, that word arrested my attention. You know payday. Payday's the day when all the bad things that have happened in the past, all the things that I've done wrong, all the mistakes that I've made, they finally all have accumulated into a kind of huge snowball and I'm just going to be crushed on payday. That's payday. The day I get paid back. And we think, oh, nobody thinks like that. Well, actually, actually, actually we do think like that. Because we've all got memories and we all know what we did. It's all very vivid to us. Here's what I said to Joanne. I said, Joanne, there is no such thing as payday. It doesn't exist for you or me. Our payday was 2,000 years ago when a man called Jesus went to a cross, was nailed and handed himself over to the hands of wicked men and died. Because of that payday, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of that payday, there's no payday for us. If you look to that and trust in that, that's what faith is. Faith finds its power in its object. There's no payday for you. And that's the problem. That in the land of until, when the pressure's on and all the things are happening around us and we're pushed and pulled and laughed at and we feel inadequate, we turn away from that. We turn towards ourselves and our circumstances. We look to the things that are around us to find help elsewhere. And then we start thinking, well, it's not succeeding, or we're looking at how someone else is doing. Why, why, couldn't, I, why couldn't I be like my brother or sister? Or why couldn't I be like that person I went to school with? Why couldn't I be like that person? Why, why is that? I start looking around. And our focus shifts off Jesus, the one who died for me and the one who is now seated at God's right hand as an eternal priest dealing with eternal things, which is the problems I've actually got. And pretty quickly I conclude that there's actually nobody who can help me. No one can help me. In fact, no one wants to help me. In fact, sometimes I think, well, I'd say, I, I go against that. I say, actually, I don't need any help. Blow you. But the truth is, we're in desperate need of help. Lots of it. And we can come to church here today or go to work tomorrow or turn up at some sports club and we can kill the golf game and be in the club talking about people or changing our shoes or whatever, but we've got makeup on. And we don't reach out for help. And Psalm 110 is telling us that not only can Jesus help, he wants to help. 
Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has in every way been tempted just as we are. In every way has been tested and tempted, yet without sin. We, 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 don't, go to a, we don't go to a priest who's going to first of all say, well, did you or did you not do it? Come on, own up. Come on. No, it's not like that. We have one who completely understands our weakness from the inside, yet without sin. So, he says, because that's true, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In a few moments we're going to gather at the Lord's table and Jesus will once again appear before us with all of his wounds, majestic and merciful at the same time. The son at the right hand and the intercessor we all need. Let's spend a few moments, uh, we're going to join in prayer in a minute, but let's spend a few moments just on our own reflecting on what we've heard today from God's word. Lord Jesus, we need you. We love you. We want to express our sorrow for our sin, our hardness of heart, our self-sufficiency, our arrogance. Please help us supply for our needs. Each one in this room, Lord, will have a different crying out today. It might be on behalf of somebody else but we know that you are more than sufficient because you are an eternal priest dealing with eternal things to provide us with everything needed. And Lord, as we gather at your table, as we receive your word in a visible form, please strengthen us and remind us again that we do not live by bread alone, by human strength alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. For Jesus' sake we ask it.